Anyone confused at all of what just happened in that video? <laughs> so this has been one of my faves for 10 years or more probably. Um, so this is basically a parody or a spoof of a rap battle, okay? Now in a rap battle, you got two different rappers and they kind of go head to head taking turns, supposedly, although Super Hot Fire just dominated so we didn't have to take a turn. And what they do is they go back and forth, kind of a spitting match and spitting rhymes at each other and then by level of crowd applause or cheering ultimately determines who the winner is. All right, so are we tracking? All right. So why did I share this video this morning? Two reasons. First, because it's hilarious. Second, because as we uh, enter our text today in John chapter 7, we see Jesus and the Pharisees get into a bit of a spitting match of sorts, right? So it's going to make sense maybe later as we get into there. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn or tap to John chapter 7. And kind of the main little chunk we're going to be focusing on begins actually with the last verse, verse 53, and goes through chapter 8, verse 11. Now, depending on the, your translation or Bible type that you may have, you may see some little parentheses before and or after the section that say something to the extent of uh, this is omitted from the earliest manuscripts. You may think, okay, so is this still legit? Is this still actual, you know, scripture? And I would argue yes. Now, of the four synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were already penned and in circulation before John was written. And so, and none of them actually mention this story. Luke actually does have a couple of the verses in there, but not in its entirety as it lays. And so by the time John came around, for whatever reason, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he chose to include this story from his memory. Church leaders later on at the councils uh, act they canonized it as scripture along with the rest of scripture. So people a lot smarter than me somewhere along the way have said, yes, this is still the inerrant word of God. So with that said, we begin reading at verse 53, and it says, then they all went home. You are dismissed. Just kidding. No, you're not. Um, so then they all went home. Do you feel like you're entering into a story that's already there's something that's happened? It's kind of like walking into a movie theater halfway through the movie and being like, I, wait, wait, what else happened that I missed, right? And so to set the context a little bit of where this story takes place, I do want to scoot back a little bit. Now, Deuteronomy, I didn't know you were going to scoot back that far. Deuteronomy chapter 16 actually outlines three major Jewish feasts or festivals that take place throughout the year. Each one of these feasts is seven days long, and the last one of these feasts that takes place in the fall is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, depending on your translation. And these were a big deal, okay, because three times a year, Jews from all over the world would make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, in order to be there to, to celebrate in these big things. So... The temple is popping a lot more than usual, okay? It'd be like going to the Cardinal Stadium in preseason versus going when it's hosting the Super Bowl. It's like, wow. If that makes sense for anyone. Um, so the temple is popping, uh, but Jesus is causing a little bit of a ruckus, okay? And as we read earlier in uh, John chapter 7, by the time we get to verse 12, we read that there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him, 
him being Jesus. Some were saying he is a good man. Others were saying no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Have you ever been in a situation like that? where there's something incredibly awkward, there's tension building in the room or the environment that you're in, but like no one's afraid to say anything out loud, you know, kind of wanting to see what happens. Several years ago, I was coming through the London Heathrow Airport, and if you haven't flown internationally, before, like after you leave the plane, but before you can enter the country, you have to go through something called customs. And I was migrating with the crowds to go through customs, and as we entered the area, we became aware that we were entering into an unfolding story that was already going on, and you could hear yelling. And as we approached, you could see a big man with an even bigger mouth uh, throwing a tantrum, right? And airport security was beginning to encircle him. And unfortunately for me, for passersby, would have recognized this man as being American. <laughs> and not just because his accent was clearly from bum, 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 deep in the heart of Texas, but also because he sounded loud, obnoxious, entitled, and demanding. And the louder he got, the more security began to circle around and people in hushed tones were, can you get the nerve of this guy? Can you believe this? But this tension kind of built and built in the room as we were waiting to see what was going to go down. And that's what I feel happened here in the temple. People are packed in and they're waiting to see what's going to go down between Jesus and the religious leaders. And by verse 30 of chapter seven, we see that they, the Pharisees, were seeking to seize him. They wanted to shut him up. And, and in the Pharisees' defense, you gotta think, Jesus, why did you have to pick the busiest day of the busiest festival of the year when the most people are here? Why couldn't you just wait until next week when it was just like the city drunk hanging out in the courtyard, right? And so he's in there and... <laughs> Continues to escalate. Verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, day seven, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Where have we heard this living waters before? Last week with the woman at the well, right? But the people in attendance, they've heard it way before then. Now keep in mind, these people are the devout Jewish people. These are the ones that are making the pilgrimage from around the world to be here for this religious feast, for this celebration of this holy day. They probably would have been pretty well adversed in scripture. They probably would have been familiar with the prophets, especially the major prophets, especially some of their favorites like Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 55, Yahweh, the great I am, makes an invitation to those who are thirsty to come drink of living water. And the people who heard Jesus say these words, they would have stood back and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus is talking as though he's God. Everybody needed a moment to cool off. So in verse 53, they all went home <laughs> to take a nap. <laughs> But Jesus, verse one of chapter eight, he went to the Mount of Olives where he often did to retreat, to pray, to be alone with the Father. And the Pharisees probably went to have a huddle somewhere to figure out, okay, 
what can we do to discredit this Jesus? Now, the day after each seven-day festival was always designated as a Sabbath because after seven hard days of celebration, they needed a day of rest. Has anyone ever gone on a vacation and come home and think, I need a vacation for my vacation? Yeah? So that's kind of the feel, but keep in mind now, we still have these very devout believers from all over the world are still in, temp- or still in Jerusalem on this day after the festival, and so naturally, they're gonna be back in church on, the, on Sabbath, celebrating Sabbath. Where's Jesus? Verse two, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Verse three, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So they were trying to ensnare Jesus, right? They gave him two bad options to choose between. One of them, he could either say, no, you're wrong, this woman deserves forgiveness. But if he were to say that, then he would have violated the Mosaic law, therefore discrediting him as a religious teacher, The Pharisees were okay with that. The other option is Jesus could have said, you know what, you're right, she deserves to be executed right here. Which then they would have reported him to the Romans because at the time the Romans did not permit Jews to carry out their own executions. So they had a bad choice or a bad choice and either one was fine with the Pharisees. But Jesus had a third way. Um, Now in order to visualize what's going on, I'd like to call up my intrepid volunteers. Got a, yeah, come on up. Come on up. Now, when I was a kid growing up on the Arizona district, going to summer camps at Pine Rock, there was an amazing man. Come on up here. You can stand like over in front of the piano area. Um, There was a man named Jim Cullenver, Reverend Jim Cullenver, who used to tell the best stories. Does anybody in here ever get to benefit from the storytelling of Jim Cullenver? Yeah. The best storyteller, right? And at Bible camp, he would call up volunteers to get to play out the different characters in the story. And if you were really, really, really lucky, you got to be Jesus, right? And so this morning, I call up just a couple volunteers to help me out. Uh, My beautiful wife uh, gets to play the part of the woman caught in adultery. We're just role-playing, okay? We're just role-playing. Go ahead and stand over here. And... uh, These will be the religious leaders. Now, Scripture says that she was brought in and forced to stand. So if you guys can just kind of maybe grab one of her arms here, keep her forcing to stand. So we've got our religious leaders. We've got our woman caught in adultery. And uh, I get to be Jesus since I'm telling the story. And so (laughs) that means y'all can be the disciples and the other crowd that's on looking, right? And this is how I kind of just picture, for some reason, whenever I picture this scenario, she's always on this side and Jesus is over here don't know why. Um, So verse something. Where are we here? Oh, first. So when we look at this picture at quick glance, what's the first thing you notice that's missing? The man. Where is the man? Last I checked, it takes two to tango, okay? And, but we only have the woman here. 
Now, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were referencing Mosaic law. Specifically, they were referencing Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. And let's read that together. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So are you catching here that the Pharisees, by, by referencing this specific Mosaic law, are already in violation of it themselves because they only brought half of the clan. So why is it just the woman? And I think maybe it's because she was an easy target, because she was a victim. And in this series, when we're talking about John, the Jesus I knew, the Jesus that John knew, Pastor Kurt has also asked the teaching team to kind of find ourselves in this story. The Jesus that I know, the gospel or the good news, according to Josiah. When I reference that frame of mind, the woman is one that I identify with in this story. Because I've been that easy target at times in my life. I've been that victim, as I've, as I've shared with you before, when I was five years old, I was molested by a neighbor. I was an easy victim. We grew up, dad left home. Mom went and got a part-time job. She started going to night school and we went on food stamps for a season. And it was kind of humbling. I remember going to school as a seventh grader wearing mom's hand-me-down XJ900s with the purple threads because they fit and kids making fun of me. But I was an easy target. When I turned 18 and got that first credit card offer with the massive credit line of $250, and you know I maxed that out in about four minutes, right? And sometimes <laughs> I was an easy target. And sometimes your decisions contribute to landing you in the, in, in the victim place where you are. And sometimes it's, it, it's outside forces. Verse six, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now, we don't know exactly what he was writing. Scripture doesn't say. Some people think maybe he was writing the, accused, the, the sins of the accusers. Some think maybe he was just drawing a Christian fish. Some think maybe he was... <laughs> Some think maybe he was writing Jeremiah 17, 13, which talks about those that, that forsake the living God's names will be written in the dust. And uh, we don't know exactly. But songwriter Joel Houston says he knelt and wrote forgiveness in the dirt because whatever he wrote, ultimately it resulted in this woman's forgiveness. But what strikes me more about Jesus writing in the dirt is not what he's writing, but how he's writing have you considered his posture in this? We know the woman was forced to stand and we know that uh, if she was caught in the act of adultery, there's a good chance that she had little to no clothing on. And by being forced to stand in this public area where the temple is packed, busier than normal, all of her shame would have been uncovered. She had no way to hide herself. And Jesus, by stooping down, I believe he began to elevate her. The word there in the Greek for stoop down is kipto. Can you say kipto? Kipto. Yeah, it's a Greek word, and it's used both times in this, in this scripture for stooping down or bending down. It's the same word used in Mark chapter 1 when John the Baptist tells about someone greater than he who is to come, one whose sandals he is not worthy to kipto, to stoop down and untie. This posture carries with it 
a reverence or an elevation of the subject of whom they are talking about. The woman was forced to stand, but Jesus knelt down so she could be elevated. Christy McClellan calls this a generous uplifting, or a generous lifting up out of shame and a restoration of honor. I think last week what Allie mentioned, what Jesus said to the woman at the well, she probably heard similarly that I see you and I love you. Verse seven, when they, the Pharisees, kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, kipto, and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, from oldest to youngest, but you can just go however you want. Y'all can like step down, but leave Jesus the woman. Y'all can go. Yeah, get out of here. (laughs) Thank you, though. (laughs) Yeah, you can stay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So they went away, the older ones to the first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there, and at this point, he's still kneeling But in verse 10, we read that Jesus straightened up. So now he had elevated her, but now he's gonna come eye to eye and he's gonna speak to her. And he says, woman, has anyone condemned you? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no, sir, no one. And he says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Thanks, babe. (laughs) You can go. But leave your life of sin. (laughs) <laughs> she was so nervous about coming up thanks hon. but she came in a victim and Jesus said you're no longer a victim you came here condemned to die but now you're free you came covered in sin and shame but now you're covered in the grace of God now go and leave your life of sin why because Jesus doesn't look away from sin he always does something about it You know why God hates sin? He doesn't hate sin because we broke a rule. He hates sin because it breaks us. It fractures us. It demeans us. It diminishes us. And ultimately, it separates us from him and for his great purpose in our life. And let me tell you, church, you were created with purpose, on purpose, for a purpose. But sin gets in the way of that divine purpose. Several years ago, we were at a restaurant after church on a Sunday, and uh, my nieces, who were young at the time, had kind of disappeared. We figured they must have gone to the bathroom and never came back, so Mel went to check on them. And I'm sorry, Kylie's running the slides, and she's probably blushing already. I apologize, girl, but it's just too good. Um, she goes to check on them in the bathroom. She opens the door, and here's what she sees. The girls had obtained several Uh, sugar packets from the condiment bar. They had proceeded to then open said sugar packets and pour them out on the floor into beautiful, tasty white mountains. And at the moment she walked in the doors, I understand, she saw them down on all fours, licking the sugar off the bathroom floor. (laughs) 
True story, a little bit yucky, but isn't that such a great picture of sin? It seems like it starts out so sweet and innocent, right? It's just that one thing, but it keeps you there longer than you thought you would ever stay, and it takes you deeper than you ever thought you would go until suddenly you look up, finding yourself sprawled out on a bathroom floor, wondering, how did I get here? I think that's where this woman found herself, probably. And Jesus, in elevating this woman, effectively picked her up off the bathroom floor and said, you were made for so much more than this. So I am the woman that Jesus elevated. I've been that easy target. I've been that victim. But there's another group in this story that I identify with as well. And that's the Pharisees, the religious leaders, because how easy it is for me to cast judgment on someone else when they don't believe the same things I do, when they don't see the world the same way as I do, when they don't have the same opinion as my objectively right opinion. It's an ongoing joke in our family, but doesn't it feel that way sometimes? Yeah, I would have another opinion other than, you know, otherwise I'm convinced of this one. It's got to be the right one. And you're wrong, but you see what happens there. It becomes about me versus you. There's this division in the camp. It becomes about us versus them. And I think they could be a person or people group that maybe you don't agree with. Maybe under your breath or in the corner of your mind, you've even thought or said, what an idiot. Not any of you sanctified believers in this room, obviously, but I'm talking about those who may be watching from another location. (laughs) But do you see how divisive that is? We objectify them, we subjugate them, we say your opinion is not as valuable as mine because it's wrong. Consider some of the debates going on in our world today. Vaccines versus no vaccine. Masks versus no masks. Democrats versus Republicans. Doesn't it feel like they're always fighting? The homeless versus the working, the rich versus the poor. Are they someone who has a different color skin than you? Are they someone who practices a different religion from you? Well, I'm Christian. We're Christian, but they, we're just going to boycott their business. How easy it is. But you know, it's not just Christian's verse, because I think we have a lot of uncivil wars brewing within Christianity. Did you know there are some Christians that think Jesus endorses a particular political party? Did you know There are some Christians that believe a woman's place is in the home and that women should not be allowed to exercise spiritual authority over men. And then there are other Christians who believe that both women and men were created equally to serve in every capacity of the church. Did you know that there are some Christians using scripture to fight other ignorant Christians over things like masks and vaccines? And this is actually happening today and it's so divisive and rather than constructive dialogue it's become this hateful hurtful fear-based monologue in the words of the apostle paul burn in my brain from first corinthians chapter 1 verse 10 
And he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no, what? Divisions among you, but that you be perfectly, what? United in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this, one of you says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, and yet another, I am of Cephas, and still another, I am of Jesus. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Because last time Paul checked, the Trinity was one. God was one. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And what he's saying, he's talking to believers here who have found things to disagree on and rather than than gather around what they have in common, they're choosing to highlight and focus and differentiate and separate, divide themselves based on their differences, whether it's theological, whether it's based on the, the denomination or church that they're a part of, whatever the case is. And Paul is saying, nah, uh Uh, Joel and Stu, come on up. You're going to help me with an illustration. So who are they? In his book, Redeeming Judgment, the author writes this. They are anyone that I may hold a physical, intellectual, or moral sense of superiority toward. They will never be as smart as me, as informed as me, as diligent as me, or as right as me. But ultimately, it's a comparison trap in which I can succeed only when they fail. Go ahead and leave that up for a sec. Moment of honesty. This is not actually from a book. I just made this up. I thought it would sound more important if it came from a book. But do you see anything in there that strikes you in the way that you look sometimes at other people? Now, I tried to come up with a little illustration. I don't know how well it's gonna work, but this is the best I could think of, so bear with me. Whoa. Thunder, hear the thunder. All right. We have three instruments up here. Bass, guitar, and drums. Each of these instruments have a unique voicing on them and sound different, nuanced, and whatever. And when they play, When each one plays individually, you get something that sounds unique. Now remember, I'm not a rapper. Just kidding, I am. But I'm not a bass player, so give me a little grace here. So for example. Now, when we take turns playing, right, when we play without the the, the togetherness, it doesn't sound that horrible, right? Well, maybe the bass, but you get the idea. Now, what happens if we play not together, but at the same time? Sounds kind of noisy, right? It sounds kind of like a mess. Because we're not playing in the same key, we're not playing in the same rhythm, 
We're each playing our own thing, but at the same time. And honestly, it just sounds like noise. And this is what I picture the divided church sounds like to the world. And they're probably thinking, why? Why even bother? No thanks, I'll just tune, turn that off. But what if different instruments still with their own unique voices, still not playing the same thing, but aligning around a common key and aligning around a common rhythm, moving together, what could happen? That's what we call music. There's harmony in there. And it's a collaboration. Now notice, we still were all three playing different things. We still had unique voices, but we were aligned around a common key and rhythm. Why don't we just call it the rhythms of grace this morning? But we were moving in the same direction, and I wonder, what if the church could focus less on where we're different and yet what we have rather and, and rather focus on what we have in common which is one God one Lord and Savior we have the one great commission and if we could move in the same direction I think that's a movement that a divided world might take note of so as we prepare to close this morning I wanna talk to two groups of people in here, and those are the two groups that I kind of identified in this story, the woman and the religious leaders. And for those this morning who may identify with the religious leaders, Stu, you can go ahead and start. I wanna ask this simple question, is there a they in your life? Is there anyone that you need to reconcile with we have been called to be ministers of reconciliation. And, and, I, and I know sometimes maybe someone has passed away and it makes it impossible, right? If you weren't here November 3rd, 2019, during our Now What series, my family uh, stood up here. Well, actually, we sat in chairs and we gave our story with my dad, my mom, my sister, my brother, and we talked through what it looked like for us over the last several decades when dad left home and spent so much time in and out of prison and what it looked like, this story of reconciliation to where we are today that God has reconciled and continues to reconcile us. And this morning, if that's the word, reconciliation, that's burning in your mind, I would encourage you, go back and watch November 3rd, 2019 to be encouraged in that. Is there an action maybe that you need to take to bring unity where there is currently division? Are there any divisions between you and other believers? How can we learn to disagree well without division? Or as Pastor Kurt has often said, how can we have tension and passion within discussion without separation? Because we serve one God. And so as Stuart plays, He's miming right now, I guess. <laughs> no signal? 
<laughs> Move to another instrument. <laughs> Don't you love <laughs> flexibility, right? <laughs> I'm glad we got some musicians here who can play anything you stick them in front of. <laughs> uh, so what we're going to do, we're going to take just a moment of reflection. We're going to put a verse up on the screen, Romans 15, 5 through 6. And if, if this is what God is kind of pressing on your heart this morning, then just in the stillness of this moment, how to encourage you, could you just surrender it to him? Maybe ask him to put in its place one simple action step that you can move forward with this week. Let's give this a moment to breathe, and then we'll move on to the next here. Second, for those maybe who find themselves identifying with a woman this morning, are you a victim, whether by your own doing or someone else? Maybe someone hurt you this week. The good news is that Jesus has declared you don't have to be a victim anymore. as I think back to that season where we were on food stamps for a few moments, you know, I hope mom, this is okay to share, but she was, uh, make, she got to a point making $8,000 a year. Now adjusted for inflation today, that would be about $14,000 a year supporting four people. And that still would be considered below the poverty level, right? And so we qualified for welfare. We qualified for food stamps. But man, as soon as my mom made enough money to pull us off of that support, she did because she says, yeah, the government may label me a victim. She's like, but I don't, I'm not gonna be a victim anymore. And this morning, whatever it is that has made you feel less than, Jesus is wanting to gently elevate you this morning. Maybe... It's not just that. Maybe it's in the quiet moments where past sins catch up with your thinking when you're laying down to go to sleep and you feel consumed by guilt or shame for who you are, who you are or how you look or what you've done. Maybe you find yourself questioning whether this life is even worth living when it hurts so bad. And I wonder, do you realize you might be laying on the bathroom floor and Jesus is speaking. You are worth so much more than this. You were created for more than this. I see you. I love you. Maybe this morning there's just a habit that's been hanging on and you just need to break it once and for all and be over it. Maybe there's a broken heart in here that just needs to be surrendered to God so he can begin to heal it. Maybe you just need a fresh perspective on your situation this morning. So as we enter into this second time of reflection in Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 goes on the screen. If this, if this is you, 
in the quietness of this moment, would you just surrender all that you are, shortcomings, the mess, even your successes. Just surrender that to God in this moment and ask him to redefine who you are. I know he won the rap battle he has the final word because he is the word and has been from the beginning he elevates the lowly and he sanctifies the sinner he unifies his people because he is one and let me ask you this morning are you his He doesn't care if you're not perfect. Are you his? He doesn't care if you're a little broken or completely broken. That's as we sang this morning, God uses broken vessels. Are you his? If you didn't fit into either one of those groups or maybe you did, but you didn't even know how to start praying, just wanna, just remind you this morning, we have these altars down here at the front. And if you feel like you still need to do work, I encourage you, don't leave. Come on down. I'm sure we have people that would be glad to pray with you to help you find where to start. But I want to read a benediction over us. It's a, it's, a, it's a blessing. It's a challenge. If you'd stand with me this morning in here. This comes from former U.S. Senate chaplain Richard Halverson. And it says this, you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of his spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, and his power in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, you are dismissed. Again, the altars are open, so if you need to come do some work, please come. Otherwise, go in the grace and peace of our Lord this week.